As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray together and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you use that word to speak to us today? Comfort us, convict us, and shape us, we pray. Give your servant words to speak, and all who listen here today, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, to the end of that chapter, to the end of Romans 8. We'll be considering that as our sermon text this evening, Romans 8, 31 through 39. This is really, in many ways, the climax of Paul's letter to the Romans up to this point, so quite an amazing passage, quite a climactic passage, and we'll, uh, we'll read that as our sermon text this evening. So Romans 8, beginning in verse 31 and reading to the end of the chapter, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him? Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us this evening. Well, looking over the daily news headlines, uh, for those of you who, who read the news every day, uh, even for those of you who don't, however you get your news, I'm sure what you see is a lot of very negative things in the news, a lot of death in the news, a lot of war, a lot of famine, a lot of hatred, a lot of division, a lot of suffering. These are the things that make big headlines. These are the things that we see every single day. It's clear that there is so much in this world that's evil, that's inexplicable, that's complex. And all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, need to ask ourselves, how are we to handle this? How are we to handle this situation? The fact that there's so much in this world that's inexplicable, that's complex, that we can't understand. And I would argue that everybody handles this through a different set of comforts, through their own kind of comfort uh, that they either make for themselves or, or is given from someone else. Some people choose the comfort of denial, telling themselves that all is well with the world, that there's nothing wrong, people are basically good, that there's nothing truly wrong. But what we see in the news every day, what we see in our own hearts, proves that wrong, doesn't it? There's no way that that can be the case. Some people choose the comfort of shifting attention, focusing completely on something else. Focus on their jobs, focus on their hobbies, focus on their kids, 
Focus on a political figure or a religious figure. Just shift the attention somewhere else. Don't focus on all that's wrong with the world. But isn't this just idolatry? Setting up something in place of or alongside of God and giving it all your attention and all your focus and all your love and all your devotion? That doesn't work either. Some people opt for the comfort of other religions, turning to Islam or Buddhism or any number of other false religions. Ultimately, though, these religions are legalistic. They require you to work out your own salvation. They don't bring any comfort at all. They bring the opposite of comfort. There's no comfort in them at all. And then finally, there is the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the comfort that's offered in the pages of our Bibles, the comfort that the Heidelberg Catechism holds forward for us in question and answer one. This is, I would argue, and I will argue tonight, the only true comfort, the only lasting comfort, the only comfort that can actually answer all the problems that we see around us, that can actually solve the problems of this world, that actually has an answer to the problems of sin and even the problem of death itself. And Paul, in our passage from Romans 8, brings out three aspects of this great comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we'll consider as our three points this evening. Three aspects of the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He first talks about Christ's perfect salvation. Christ's perfect salvation. He talks next about Christ's powerful preservation. His powerful preservation. And finally, he talks about our personal assurance. Christ's perfect salvation, his powerful preservation, and our personal assurance. So those would be our three points for this evening. First, Christ's perfect salvation. And Christ's salvation is perfect. And what I mean by that is Christ's salvation is complete. It's finished. It's done. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. He actually accomplished what he set out to do, in other words. And this is crucial to understanding what Paul is saying in this passage. If Christ's salvation is not perfect, if he didn't actually accomplish what he set out to do, if it's not actually finished, then what Paul says in this passage really makes no sense at all. Look at verses 33 and 34 of our passage. Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. No one can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. No one can condemn those for whom Christ has died. And why can Paul say this? How can this be true? It's because Christ's salvation is perfect. It's finished. He's accomplished his mission. For one thing, he's actually accomplished the penalty paying of sin. Scripture tells us on many occasions that God is a just judge, a just judge who will always do what is fair, what is right, who will always, who will always hand down the, the just verdict, in other words. He'll always do what is fair. And the just, the fair verdict on sin is death. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we examine ourselves like we did this morning in the light of God's law, we recognize that we've all broken God's law. We're all sinful. We all deserve death by that standard of justice. That's what's fair. That's what's right. And so a perfect salvation must include a solution to this problem. It must include a solution to the problem that God is a just judge who will not declare the guilty to be innocent and that we are all guilty. 
We've all sinned against him. We all deserve death. And this is exactly the kind of salvation that Christ brought in his death on the cross. As he bore our sins, as he underwent the penalty of sin, death in our place, God was just toward Christ so that he might be merciful toward us. Christ's salvation is perfect in that he has fully atoned for sin. There's no penalty left to pay. For those who trust in Christ, God's wrath has been satisfied. So as Paul says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can condemn? Imagine that you have that you're in a lot of debt, a lot of credit card debt, a lot of student loan debt, whatever it might be. And you come to that great day where the balance is finally zero, you pay it all off. It's a great day, right? You're celebrating. But then the credit card company, the loan company comes back to you and says to you, yeah, we're, we know that the balance is zero, but if you don't pay us more money, we're going to bring you before a judge. We're going to sue you for more money. You still owe us more. We still want more from you. Well, what would you say to that company? What would a good judge say to that company? He would throw that case right out of court, wouldn't he? That's ridiculous. It would be ridiculous for them to come back. No, the debt's been paid. It's done. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. It would be ridiculous for someone to come to us and say that we still have a penalty to pay for our sin, that we're still under God's wrath, that we're still under his condemnation. For all who trust in Christ, the penalty has been paid. There's nothing left to pay. Christ's salvation is perfect. And our catechism in question and answer one echoes this, doesn't it? Look at uh, just down from the beginning of, of that question. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. These things are in the past. They're finished. They're done. But the news gets even better. Having our sins forgiven is great news. That's awesome news. That's a great salvation that Christ has won for us. But this is not all that Christ's salvation has won for us. Look at verse 32 of our passage. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things, Paul says. All things are ours in Christ. Because Christ not only died for our sins, he was perfectly obedient on our behalf as well. Through his whole life, he rendered the perfect obedience that Adam failed to give. Christ did what Adam failed to do. Christ earned the eternal life that Adam failed to earn. And so when we trust in Christ, God not only forgives us of our sins, but he also credits Christ's perfect righteousness to us as if we had done this ourselves. Because of Christ, we have a claim on nothing less than the new creation itself. Eternal life of blessedness with our triune God. Christ's salvation is indeed perfect. There's no penalty left to pay. There's nothing left to merit through our own obedience. And this fact that Christ's salvation is perfect has important implications for Christians and non-Christians alike. If you're here today not trusting in Christ and his perfect salvation, then the fact that God is a just judge is the worst news that you could possibly hear this evening. Because it means you're under his just condemnation. And so I urge you, repent and believe, and Christ's perfect salvation will be yours. But for us who are here this evening trusting in Christ, who are recipients of this most glorious salvation, 
We've been freed from needing to merit our own salvation. We could never do this ourselves, could we? But we've not been freed to do whatever we want, to live however we want, to serve whomever we want. No. As the Catechism says, I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been freed to obey God's law gratefully, joyfully, to bear one another's burdens as Christ has borne ours. The Catechism says, Christ through his Holy Spirit makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. May we live for our Lord and Savior more each and every day by the power that the Holy Spirit grants us. Now this is already incredible comfort, isn't it? But Paul gives us even more as he continues in this passage as he talks about Christ's powerful preservation of his people. If the salvation which Christ won could be lost, this really wouldn't bring much comfort, would it? If even the very littlest bit your salvation was up to you, would you take that deal? Would you trust yourself? I wouldn't trust myself. I know myself too well. No. The comfort of the gospel is not only that Christ's salvation is perfect, but that God preserves his people, that he keeps his people in that salvation. Look at verse 35 of our passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We already know the answer to this question, don't we? Nothing can separate us. But if it wasn't clear enough, Paul goes on at the end of this, uh, at the end of this passage as if he almost couldn't contain himself. He's so excited. Verses 38 and 39. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God upholds. He keeps us who trust in Christ. Are you worried that the surrounding culture might mock you for your faith and this might cause you to fall away from Christ one day? Are you worried that your job might someday be in jeopardy because of your faith in Christ, because you profess the Christian faith? Are you worried that your own sin might one day tempt you away from Christ and cause you to fall away? If you are here today, know for sure trusting in Christ. If you are here today trusting in Christ, know for sure that none of these things and nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of Christ, from God's love in Christ Jesus. God will keep you until the end. He promises that to us here. And again, the Catechism summarizes this truth beautifully as it says, God also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And why can we be so sure of this? Why can we be so sure that nothing can separate us from Christ, that not a hair can fall from our heads without God's will, that all things must work together for our salvation? Well, for one thing, because as we talked about under the first point, Christ's salvation is perfect. If Christ has really won for us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, it would be, in fact, unjust for God not to give us those things. God will surely give us what Christ has won for us. But also, look at verse 34. Christ has died. He was raised. These things are done. They're in the past. But what is he doing now? What does Paul say Christ is doing now? He's interceding for us in the presence of his Father. What is Christ doing now? He's praying for you. He's praying for me. 
praying that our faith might not fail, praying that we would not be overcome by the things of this world, praying that we would not be overcome by Satan and his forces or by our own sinful hearts even. Your Savior is praying for you. And do you think the Father will deny the prayer of his only begotten and beloved Son? No way. He will surely give what his Son asks him for you on your behalf. Notice what Paul is assuming here. He's assuming that Christians will experience trials and tribulations and temptations in this life. He's assuming that Christians will suffer and, in fact, that this could get very bad. In some parts of the world, Christians at this point do already face the sword and famine and even death for the sake of their faith. The promise, the comfort of this passage is not that Christ delivers us from earthly, earthly struggles and sufferings immediately when we turn to him and become Christians. No, the promise is that he will, he will keep us, he will preserve us through these things. The life of a Christian is a life of suffering. Paul says in verse 36, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the experience of Christians throughout the ages. But what does Paul say right after this? That we should give up? That we should lose hope? No. In verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors, Paul says. We follow the pattern of our Lord, suffering now and glory later. One day Christ will deliver us from these earthly sufferings. But until then, we conquer through our suffering. And one day, we will be conquerors in glory. And Christ promises to keep us until that day. So Christ's salvation is perfect, and he keeps his people in that salvation. But you may still be asking, how do I know that this is for me? How do I know that Christ's perfect salvation and his powerful preservation are mine? Can I know this? And Paul's answer that he gives in this passage is a resounding, yes, yes, you can know that this is for you. Yes, you can have a personal assurance of these things. Yes, you can be sure that Christ loves you, that you are his, that he is yours, and that he will keep you until the end. And really, assurance runs throughout this entire passage, doesn't it? In verse 31, at the very beginning, Paul asks the rhetorical question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Paul could have just as easily said, since God is for us, no one can be against us. What assurance that the God who made all things, that the God who continually upholds and sustains all things is on your side, is on my side, is your ally? Could we ever hope for a better friend, a better ally? No. He's on your side. What assurance. This is the best friend that we could ever have. Then in verse 32, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us. How will he not also with him give us all things? If someone sacrifices what's most dear to them for you, do you have any doubt that they love you? Stories of sacrifice that we hear touch us so deeply, don't they? As we hear about a soldier who loves his country and is willing to die for it, and even gives his life for it. As we hear about a mother who loves her child and might sacrifice her life during an earthquake to save that child, might throw herself on top of that child. As we hear about a firefighter who runs into a burning building to save a family of people who are trapped inside that building. These stories touch us so deeply. Do you have any doubt that that 
mother loves her child, that that soldier loves his country, that that firefighter cares about the people he's been tasked to protect? No. God the Father sacrificed what was most dear, what was most precious to him for you, his only begotten and beloved son. You have any doubt that he loves you? He loves you. He gave up what was most dear to him for you. And then to top it all off, Paul says in verse 38, I am sure, he says, I am certain, I have no doubt, Paul says, that nothing, that anything can separate me from Christ. Nothing can separate me from him, Paul says. And this same assurance is for you today if you are trusting in Christ. God gave him up for you. God is on your side for his sake. Christ is interceding for you even now in the presence of his Father. And so you can say along with Paul, I am sure, I am certain, I have no doubt that Christ is for me, that God loves me, that Christ died for me, that he will keep me until the end. Notice the catechism's emphasis on assurance as well, all through question and answer one. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me. All things must work together for my salvation. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. The comfort of the gospel is for me. It's for you. Perhaps for some of you, this creates something of a tension, maybe a bit of a concern for you. You might be saying to yourself, Paul in the catechism, say I can be sure, say I should have no doubt, and yet I'm sitting here tonight feeling a lot of doubt, feeling even a little bit of doubt maybe. It's true that all of us have times of greater and lesser assurance. It's true that some Christians struggle with assurance more throughout their entire lives than others. Maybe you're here today having some doubts and concerns, wondering, is my faith true? Are my works good enough? Is my faith strong enough? Struggling with assurance is normal in this sinful world. Our prayer as Christians is like that prayer of the man in Mark 9, who said to Christ, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, I'm trusting in you, Lord, but I still feel so much doubt. Help me to trust in you more. Strengthen my faith. That's our prayer throughout our whole Christian life. Increase our assurance. Strengthen our faith. We should all pray for greater assurance because God does answer prayer. We should all strive for works of gratitude to obey God, to obey his law out of gratitude for all that Christ has done for us because God does use the good works that we do by the power of the Holy Spirit to increase our assurance. We should avail ourselves of the means of grace, of preaching, of the supper. These are ways that God uses to increase our assurance, to, to strengthen the faith of his people. This means attending church faithfully. These are all ways that God has given us to increase our assurance. But if you're trusting in Christ, if you're repenting of your sins, even if you're struggling with assurance, do not despair. Christ's perfect salvation and his powerful preservation are for you. As we close, brothers and sisters, this is the comfort that we need. In the midst of all the division, the hatred, the war, the sickness, the injustice, the famine, even the death all around us, this could drive us to despair, couldn't it? There's no ultimate answer to these problems except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He has won a perfect salvation. He's defeated sin and death and the devil. God promises a powerful preservation that nothing can separate you from his love, that he will keep you until the end. And we can have a personal assurance of this, that this is for me, that this is for each and every one of you who trust in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, that the comfort which you promised to bring your people has come through the person and work of your own beloved Son. Thank you that for our sake you did not spare your Son. Thank you for the salvation which he has won. Thank you that you promised to keep us until the end. And thank you that even now we can be assured that this salvation is for each and every one of us who puts our faith in Christ. Help us to grow in our assurance. And in response to this gracious and glorious work of salvation, love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.